This is the What Matters Most podcast. A 100% listener-supported program. And now, here is your host, Paul Samuel Dolman. Welcome back to What Matters Most. Thank you to everyone who has tuned in. Appreciate you all over the world, caring, intelligent audience, great notes, great guest suggestions, great book suggestions. That's all I have to say. I'm super grateful also to the Patreons and our technical wizard, Matthew Wayne Selznick on the West Coast. Everybody makes it happen. To shout out today to Lorna, excellent publicist who keeps sending me these fabulous guests. He's the author, the co-author of a beautiful book called Kune, or Kunai. I'll have to find, I think it's Kunai. A Japanese Vision and Practice for Urban-Rural Reconnection. What an honor to finally welcome to the family, Mr. Richard McCarthy. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Paul. I'm thrilled to be here and, and to share with you a glimpse into some wild ideas. I love that. How did you get into the world of sustainability? That's usually when I was growing up. I didn't remember any kids saying, I want to be in sustainability. Usually the astronaut, fireman baseball player how'd you get into sustainability I, I i guess it's that strange relationship between hyper local and hyper global and uh the more i studied you know political science and global systems the more i began to recognize at least at that time my hometown of new orleans uh seemed to be struggling with the same issues that I was reading about in the global south, which is uh, extractive economies that uh, decimate culture, ecosystems, and people's sense of pride and place. And uh, so like uh, the way that um, a place like New Orleans has uh, humidity that just sucks you right in, uh, I began to become very active in uh, the role of food as a bridge between people and um, began to develop community gardens and then CSAs and then ultimately where I've spent much of my life in uh, the role of, of public markets and in particular farmers markets that build a public good and um, have a different relationship with our extractive economy because instead of extracting things, we actually cultivate uh, livelihoods um, within the ecosystem rather than um, in spite of it. Beautiful. What is it about getting your hands in the soil, growing something, sharing it and eating it that kind of puts us almost in some sort of deep primal connective, I guess, experience with the source, with Mother Earth, with each other? It is, as you describe. And, and it's funny, my my um, half my family are from, from England and uh, sort of a saying in England that once you turn 40, you discover your green fingers and you just naturally become a gardener because it's just sort of woven into the, I don't know, political DNA of the place. Um, I think many of us though don't have that um, pathway. Um, I mean, it's funny in, in rural communities, they sort of look at you crazily, like, what do you mean you don't know how to... Uh, you know, um, how to manage a chicken coop or something like that. But mostly the, 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 the joys or the terror of 20th century life is that we were able to build this incredible global industrial combine that allows us to live in cities 
and not understand a thing about where our food comes from or the rhythm of our seasons or the fact that there is a logic to it all. And if we are lucky enough, because our school <laughs> forces us like in sort of Korean labor camp, um, you know, to go work in the, in the school garden, or if our parents are, um, you know, forcing you to, to, to garden on weekends or whatever the case may be, um, if that accident occurs and you are lucky enough to begin to discover the, the, the humbling joys of planting food, and it can be, doesn't have to be anything audacious, it can just be planting herbs that you add to your meal. Um, we know from, from uh, I mean, there's evidence about it, but, but any of us who've done it in a tactile fashion know that the strawberry or the carrot that you grow as a child are the best ones you've ever tasted. And it changes your whole trajectory of understanding the patience and the science and um, the care that it takes to uh, to tend the garden. Um, there's nothing like it. And I, I think in particular in this age of um, manic 24-hour communications, uh, you can lose yourself in in a garden. And, um, and, and, and just as you can, you don't even have to be doing something productive and transforming the land as a garden. Uh, I, I think, and again, uh, the, the book Cooney, and I, I think that's how you pronounce it, but I, I will ask them, uh, I've heard it, but I, I will ask because I, I, I do wonder if I'm, I'm, you know, butchering the language. Um, but the the, the Japanese post war embraced this urban megacity industrial worldview so wholeheartedly that we're seeing a glimpse of what it looks like on the other end of that love affair. And people are lost, people are bored, people are worn out. And uh, some of these concepts like forest bathing uh, were developed there because um, we know that it, it it heals us if we spend time in nature. And um, uh, if we spend time around birds, we spend time uh, away from the sounds of the city, uh, the fresh air, we pick up, um, uh, you know, we breathe in things that are better for us than all the toxins we have in the city. And um, uh, it's very hard to break from being a cog in the wheel. It's very hard. Economically, uh, uh, whether it's money or time, they both equate to the same thing. They imprison us. And uh, if we can liberate ourselves from that, even in small ways, it helps to point us towards um, the, 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 the audacity that there might be alternatives to the way we're um, running um, rank and file. And it is running. And that's beautiful. And I can speak from personal experience. I always love nature. Yeah, just that was it for me. I always been, I grew up in South Florida, be out in the Everglades or in the ocean, depending on if I went east or west. And then only in the last few years did I suddenly start putting my hands in the soil and gardening and became addicted. It just to be out there amongst it and cultivating, trimming, developed a relationship with a group of crows that watch who I feed and who yak and the raccoon comes at night, cleans up. And one night I was out there, the raccoons over there and a possum walked right by me. And that's here in a cul-de-sac in, you know, residential Florida, Northern Florida. I'm not out in the wilds, but it's changes you. And then we've done shows where it's the biophilia effect being out in this, in these environments change your 
biochemistry or energy fields. Everything's science, not not mysticism. Although it is mystic, everything's mystical. I wonder if that radical disconnection for billions of people, multi-millions of people, is at the root of both our unhappiness, our negligence in allowing this beautiful biosphere to be destroyed to the point where it could create our own mass extinction and take a whole bunch of other innocent species with us. We are self-absorbed. And we are so obsessed with short-term happiness uh, and and very unconcerned with our our responsibility. And uh, one of the 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 concepts in this book that really struck me as at the core of issues I've struggled with uh, is... um, my, my co-author uh, Sayoshi Sekihara um, is really, really fixated on the right sides of the community, and <clears throat> as always, operating in the nonprofit social change, um, sustainable development world, um, we are in the unfortunate position of always seeking funding. And when you seek funding from a funder to support the work, because of course our our system doesn't automatically uh, enable it to exist because the market only loves certain things, uh, is the obsession of, well, if you're going to have impact, um, you need to be of a certain scale. And I I think that the the culture of gigantism is such that it uh, belittles that which is small. It doesn't recognize the scale of existence that you really uh, beautifully um, uh, describe in the garden. All these small systems that are in place, these conversations that are that are under under all of our feet all the time, and we are trained not to not to pay attention to them. If you were to take that to the the sort of other realm of of the places in which we inhabit, um, our settlements, what scale are they? Um, the size of a place that you live in, has a very different relationship with its carrying capacity, with the carrying capacity of the ecosystem around you. And uh, unfortunately, we live in a bigger is better era where, of course, it's got to be bigger. The cities get bigger. The opportunity is there. And we um, simply treat our surrounding regions as places where we extract the resources we need to live. And, um, And the projects that get funded are only the big ones that are scaled the ones that uh, are replicable and scalable. And, and and we start writing proposals and we use the language of scalability as if we even know what we're talking about. And that maybe when things get so large, they actually lose their efficacy um, because, because of scale. And so in, in the, the book uh, and in his work, he spent a lot of time uh, living and, and, and trying to survive in small uh, almost abandoned rural rice growing communities of Japan, of which there are many of them that are, you know, hanging on uh, by a thread, um, <clears throat> as to what is the right scale of a community. And many of these small villages in Japan are dying. The village mayor is wondering how on earth can the village mayor keep the community moving forward? What resources? Will there be a future population? You know, and so forth. 
And uh, some of them are so small, they will disappear. But then some might have enough of a scale to survive. Um, and so he looks at this question of what does it mean to live in the right size community? If it's so large, like New York City, like Tokyo, um, you may have a lot of freedom and anonymity, but you have almost no access to power, to decision-making, to changing the trajectory of the systems that define your everyday life. And then if you live in a very small community, you may have lots of access to power, even though there may be a tyranny of, of small places, um, but you don't have a lot of freedom because anything you do, your neighbors know about. And this whole question really I discovered as I, I began to you know, research it more and more that this is not the only time this has been raised about what is the scale of our network that we can actually manage, technology aside, how many people can we manage in our lives? And, and what is the right scale that gives a really healthy balance between uh, pluralism uh, on, on the one hand, the sort of having uh, a variety of voices present um, and having the freedom to be somewhat anonymous um, and, and then also control over our lives. And I think as you described the cul-de-sac you live in, it's a little corner of the planet, but it is connected to a larger political entity. And how well does it serve your interests and the interests of your neighbors? And, and this is very much not just a sort of theoretical question, but one that speaks to the survival of these small rural communities where um, traditional livelihoods, traditional care of the ecosystem is endangered because it's been abandoned. Yes, and even though you're just you, whoever's listening, or me or you, if we put out bird seed and water for animals and cultivate our garden and grow flowers and the bees come and do their thing, at least it's helping if we eat clean and we compost, it's helping. It's funny, Wall Street would never fund the bees because it wouldn't scale. <laughs> Need the bees, but the bees... Without the bees, the whole thing dies. It's so dumb. And I love the idea, the insanity of a progressive growth model on a finite resource planet. It's like this, it's almost like attending a cancer cell convention, you know, where they just, that's all they believe in. It's continual and excessive growth. <laughs> and if you show up and say, but you'll kill the host organism. Oh, blasphemy. No money in that. And you just walk away shaking your head. How did you and this beautiful co-author, how did you guys connect? Well, we connected through uh, a program that the Japan Society, which is designed to uh, serve as a bridge between Japanese and American ideas, um, had uh, received the funding in order to bring rural innovation uh, and innovative leaders between Japan and the US together. And I had long had a relationship with the Japan Society as we were looking at questions of uh, trauma and natural disasters and recovery uh, as a New Orleanian looking at post-Katrina and then there in Japan looking at um, a volcano that had erupted and affected life on a small island off the coast of Tokyo. And um, I was really enamored with this opportunity to share ideas 
because um, <clears throat> it's not that everything is perfect in Japan and everything's terrible here or the alternative. Uh, what's so fascinating about places like Japan, and you could throw other countries into it, Brazil, um, maybe Italy, um, but, but most almost everywhere except for North America. Uh, there is a, uh, a, a cultural default that we look at solutions as uh, uh, from, from, a, um, from the standpoint of we, from a community level. Um, we are so hyper-individualistic um, that we will um, threaten everyone else's existence in order to, for me to pursue my happiness. Um, those norms are so strange to the Japanese um, that that we are so individualistic in our solutions that um, uh, when one interacts with the other, some amazing things happen. And uh, they become enamored with our ability to be incredibly agile and creative um, and, and to disregard structure and hierarchy. Um, and we become enamored with their ability to reach community consensus. And so through these exchanges, I learned about this. And, and this is what the story of the book is, is my, my co-author uh, telling his story of developing a nonprofit organization in rural Japan, Joetsu, which is on the sea of Japan, four hours by high-speed high train away from Tokyo. And uh, in this community of rural Joetsu. Joetsu is a city um, of about 200,000 people, and this is the southern rural part of it. Up in the mountains, about 20 minutes from the, the Sea of Japan, um, absolutely stunningly beautiful part of the world. And um, traditionally, thousand-year-long rice-growing regions, these little hamlets, these little villages uh, that were largely abandoned in the, the 60s and 70s and 80s, as people knew that the future was going to be in Tokyo, it was going to be production, uh, factories, um, technology, and so forth. And uh, what has since been a very slow death are these small rural agricultural communities that are also incredibly important for the um, emblem of what does it mean to be Japanese is to grow rice, to respect the seasons, to care for the forest, uh, to, um, as a community together, to clean out the irrigation canals where the community shares water in a very um, complex cooperation system that everyone gets to share this very, very clean water that comes from the top of the mountains. And um, these communities were no longer functioning and they had no future. Is, is sort of the, the trajectory that many of them are on. And in Japan, they have become very um, <clears throat> creative and desperate in finding ways to, 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 to give them a population for a future, young people. Uh, government in, in um, uh, local government has developed dating apps to try and lure <laughs> young people into these rural communities. I mean, that's how creative slash desperate things have become. Uh, the, my my co-author, um, Siyoshi Sekihara, grew up in a community like this in Niigata, Niigata Prefecture, went to Tokyo, did the thing that everyone's supposed to do, became a successful designer, had a midlife crisis, 
Um, he didn't go back home, but he went place somewhere near home in Niigata in, in southern Joetsu. And he found as much as you described this experience of reconnecting with nature, with the wildness of it, um, with the, the beauty of it, the rhythm of it. And he realized how out of out of sync he had become. And and he found it as a refuge. And he, he started to go back frequently and then he moved there. And then he began to notice just how rusty everything had become. The infrastructure that had been invested in in the previous 20, 30 years was now showing uh, the effects of um, uh, deferred maintenance. And the forest was now filled with kindling. It had not been cleaned out as it would every season. Uh, the irrigation canals were not being cleaned out. Maybe it doesn't matter because are they growing rice anymore? Uh, I mean, these are issues that are very acute in Japan, but you could look around the United States and, and see very similar dynamics as we give up on the um, uh, the multifaceted element of what does a functioning community look like economically, spiritually, um, civically. And um, he noticed that one of the barriers were the, the fact that the villages are fighting each other, fighting for resources. And um, and that maybe the village is not the right model. Maybe his nonprofit could become an aggregation of the village to think more strategically, to care for the local population and actually replace a lot of the elements that maybe once were done traditionally, then were picked up by government and now again are being sent into another sector, which is sector not very well developed in Japan. And that this becomes an expression of the imagining this new community, this regional community. And this is the, the logic behind the name Kuni, which is the, it's the ancient name for the nation, the nation of Japan. And um, rather than using it to describe the nation, uh, Kuni becomes, or Kuni equals community. And the community is a new one. And so it's very forward looking, not backward looking. And I think it, this juncture in the 21st century, we need to be forward looking. We need to build it based on maybe traditional practices, traditional assets, um, uh, traditional mechanisms to build skills and reposition them for the future. But that raises the question, well, what do you do in the future? Do you make things? Do you grow things? Do you, in, as, as they have done in rural Joetsu, um, actually uh, create a kind of uh, very inventive uh, uh, agritourism where it has a very political element as well, which is the visitors become repeat visitors who become honorary members of the community. And those repeat visitors are from urban areas. So also recognizing that those of us who live in urban areas need some escape valve. We need to find ways to get outside and not just go on some holiday, go to some random area, but actually go to an area where you have a relationship with people. So it's really about building the future on relationships that have a balance between bonding, those of it, those who live there, and bridging, those who become uh, out, outsiders and become semi-insiders. God, I see it so holistically, too, because we are dealing with epic levels of loneliness, isolation, suicides, violence, and it's all the uh, isolation and this 
sense of community, which is lacking and built into our DNA as communal creatures, is really the bomb for so many things that ail us. So you could, I think it's something you could apply personally and in your own community to just bond and create people in small groups and get support. That's been a lifesaver for me, both in my life in general, but also during the COVID pandemic. And even now, my greatest treasure is my friends and my community, which we talk every day, different people and share and support each other, encouraged and also hold into account responsibility. I can't imagine my life without it wouldn't be worth living, no matter what other pleasures I could have. I Through all of this, I just wonder how are we going to transition if we can, from growth, continuous growth to sustainable, because sustainable is a nice word for not going extinct. <laughs> mm -hmm, you're sustainable. Mm -hmm. If you're non-sustainable, you're going extinct, right? Yeah. Cut the euphemisms, please. I mean, I keep hearing now about shedding. We might shed three or 4 billion people. Shed, like send them to another planet. No, shed, done, dead, extinct. So how... Is it possible? Because there's so much momentum. I was reading the other day that these companies that are making just insane amounts of money like Amazon, Netflix, Apple, but their stock is tanking because even though they made it like 20 billion, they didn't grow. They're not growing enough. So how are they going to grow? And somebody gets fired if some big CEO makes 100 million a year. But it's insane. How do we shift this, Richard? How do, and obviously not overnight. How do we, start to transition. I see the seeds of a way out in this, in these practices and in these philosophies. They, they are. And, and, and I guess my excitement about when I, I met uh, um, I visited his community. I spent many, many hours with him sharing ideas uh, through a translator because he doesn't really speak English. Um, and I recognize he, he He's visionary, he's humble, he's a practitioner, most importantly, but he's a practitioner who thinks. So his organization is a learning organization, and it's not a charismatic one. It's not that he's charismatic and therefore everyone follows him. He is cultivating leaders who uh, share in a set of values, who have shared practice, and then who will take things moving forward. That really inspired me because he was doing that from a voice that is rural. And I think even like people like me who are pro uh, urban rural linkages and, and I wanna see more rural investment, um, I'm still speaking as an urban dweller. And it's really important to elevate the voice of, of rural communities and, and, and rural leaders who are usually marginalized. In the US, that means probably, um, uh, well, it means an interesting, uh, crossing of uh, um, uh, political boundaries, the way that we've created these um, political tribes between urban and rural. Um, <clears throat> it means elevating the voice of uh, uh, voices from Indian country, First Nations, whose uh, uh, models for life are actually far more in line with what we'll need to survive. Um, so for one, that really excited me. And I think to hear a story and in his part of the book, we share chapters, you know, he does a chapter, I do one. Uh, mine are really how to translate this into North America. 
his is telling his story. And what really excites me is that he tells the story that this is really hard work. I did it for a long number of years. People thought I was crazy, but slowly we built an alternative infrastructure for life. And I think we need to invest in these alternative institutions. Now that sounds rather dull and rather intimidating. Um, where they start are choices that we make as individuals. What do we wanna to connect to? Where do we wanna spend our money and our time on? And as you described uh, quite rightly, and I notice that the older I get, that um, uh, loneliness is death. And if we isolate ourselves, doesn't matter how many resources, homes, cars, whatever you have. It's it's having a healthy network that gives you meaning. Um, and, and with people, you build trust. Other people are like oxygen um, in that you you um, you can learn from them and, and, and they broaden your world. Now, you can live in a city and you think other people are oxygen. Are you kidding me? I've had enough with people. Um, I mean, so it depends on if they are under what conditions, what are the contexts where we're able to build those bridges? And uh, my work in developing farmers markets for many years um, and working in, in that space of gardens and markets are probably where I've spent most of my time. Um, it, um, it, these are the kinds of institutions that model the kinds of practices we'll need to survive in this increasingly um, unpredictable, um, uh, unsteady future. And they are not heavy, they're light, uh, they're agile. Um, and I think during the pandemic, we saw this with farmers markets. Uh, at first they were deemed as unable to operate because it's people joining, you know, coming together, assembling together. And uh, instead, the farmer's market said, no, we're an essential service. We're a point of distribution. And um, we will adjust according to the spacing that one needs in order to operate safely. And that kind of inventiveness is what we will need uh, in order to survive. Um, but in me running farmer's markets in New Orleans, circa 2005, when Hurricane Katrina flooded our world, um, what I began to um, no longer believe <laughs> was that this um, uh, the people who promote the growth model, the never-ending growth, um, actually have no idea what they're talking about. Um, they are locked into a worldview that clearly has boundaries. We are beginning to see what those boundaries are, and you're absolutely right. It, the question of X number of people will no longer be able to live on the planet. Well, and who's going to decide who those people are? Um, uh, there, there's some really frightening power equations in that. Um, as we become more desperate, um, it can turn ugly, or it can turn. Um, uh, it, it can it can be a beautiful moment, and I'd say that moments of trauma uh, show the best and the worst of people. It, it somehow peels away the veneer and you find out what are the real power lines. And also um, power is not always where you think it is. And uh, one of the, the, the most extraordinary things in my relationship with Japan has been around this issue of trauma and disaster um, is that for an island or uh, uh, assembly of islands, um, they're all mountainous. <laughs> they're all subject to earthquakes, volcanoes, 
typhoons and and the tsunamis that come with them uh with maybe the earthquakes and um therefore disaster and collapse and uncertainty is rolled into the dna of of, of people's everyday decisions i'd say that in north america our incredibly positivist approach is about growth and success and things will always work and it's a sign of failure if you design for failure um and then maybe this is a little bit of an extreme but it's sort of a caricature of how we see things um when when i you know was was, was thrust into becoming a something of a um climate refugee living four months in another state because i couldn't live in my hometown because it was flooded and the ripple effects of what happens after a flood um certainly taught me that what matters is who we have around us who is in our network that i can really lean on when things really matter and one of the things that i certainly began to develop with my um, farming and fishing community um, at the time was that we had each other and therefore we'll be okay it'll be tough but we have each other and uh they lost during this period of, of chaos uh they mourned and lost their city even though they lived in rural areas they had a relationship with the city and um those of us in the city realized it's pretty handy to have a relationship with farmers who grow food and who are inland and could be a safe haven to go to should things really go south and when i described this to to sekihara-san he said well this is precisely what the kuni is about so when you buy rice from uh the 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 fan club and everything everyone in japan has a fan club not just a, a baseball team but but every corporation has a fan club uh it's the way they organize and the uh nakanamato fan club is the um uh the the fan club of this 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 region that um his ngo has created and uh when you buy rice from from them as a community community enterprise you are party to the rice covenant and so it's not just a commercial transaction it's a uh, a civic transaction so as a customer of the rice you then are invited to come harvest the rice dry the rice um clear out the the, the canals as i described um, you know for the irrigation you're invited to be part of the process you're also invited to return to the community you know whether they ship it um you know um to them or whether they come for a weekend and pick up the rice the customers um is that you're invited to return to the community uh to help in the the production of the rice or any of the other amazing products that of course are packaged beautifully because details matter in Japan um but you're also invited to be part of the civic festivals uh the the community village um Shinto festivals and the harvest festivals um if you are a musician you're invited to perform in this community um in other words it's an invitation to join a community of um of care of practice uh, a community that is built on bridging and i have to say this is an idea that is far more elegant and i and i think profound than even the ideas that many of us who work in in urban rural linkages through farmers markets and food 
we may think of it as a social contract, but we've never actually said it or codified it. And, um, and in Japan, the idea that, in other words, your relationship with a small rural community is something of an insurance policy, means something in a place, whether it is tsunami or, or plague or, 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 um, uh, uh, or earthquake, that you can find safe haven in this community, which means this community has begun to recognize that first of all, first and foremost, success is that we have to function as a community democratically with pluralism, but we have to identify what are our, our priorities. And it's mapped out very clearly the kind of social services as well as the economic development and caring for the elderly as well as the youth. Um, that's a pretty robust and holistic approach. And of course, care for the ecosystem in which they are dependent upon for their life, lives and livelihoods. But that by creating a, a functioning community, not just a place that produces stuff in that kind of economistic approach that we tend to look at in the US, but it is a community that is healthy and happy, that that's the kind of community that will attract outsiders. And outsiders is second homeowners, sure, maybe there's some beautiful housing stock, but but outsiders who invest in the integrity and 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 value that these communities exist. Um, this is what we need. And where does it start? It starts by building bridges. And I think there are bridges that already exist in our in our reality. I think farmers markets are, continue to be one of the most consistent. Uh, an overlooked infrastructure that brings urban to rural. Um, I think um, agritourism, ecotourism, anything that brings you out into the wilds is um, is also part of that. Um, but we tend to look at these as very narrow individual enterprises. But if instead we begin to look at them as expressions of community building, then we can begin to politicize them. And again, small people politicize them in another way. You've mentioned Katrina a few times. What was it like to go through that experience? I, I know people have been down there and had harrowing stories. And of course, so many died and it just is it's still being unpacked. I love Spike Lee did a great series called When the Levees Broke. What was it like for you? Well, I was safe uh, and my family was safe. and um, uh, And so at one level, you know, it was a chapter of my life um, and is unfortunately a chapter I can't shake because everything for me is um, uh, relates to that moment when I realized that there is no one in charge. Um, when I realized we are so unprepared for what is now going to become a norm. Um, and it um, continues to anger me that we allow for um such shoddy um social protection for people most vulnerable which is what brought me in contact with japan because they looked after their elderly with extraordinary care um a little bureaucratic but they but they they did it um for me it was insane and it was wild and it was um uh the only time i ever evacuated um, I mean, now that I live in New York City, I have a different relationship with hurricane season. Um, it, when you live in, as you live in hurricane um, corridor, um, it means that six months of the year, 
you're always just trying to make sure where are my family photographs, where are my legal documents in case I have to leave. Um, and that's a lot of stress. Um, on the other hand, I think we need to weave that stress into our lives, all of our lives. Um, the period, uh, I returned a week after the storm. Anyway, for, first of all, it's the first time I ever evacuated. Um, and it was listening to the fishermen. Uh, we had a market that weekend. And uh, I asked them, so what do you think? Is this going to be that bad? And the look on their faces, because uh, they're always quite confident because their livelihood is based on understanding currents and 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 and, and seas. Um, <clears throat> they said, no, this is this is bad. As it turned out, we evacuated. I, I it's crazy. It's the only time I ever evacuated. Um, what I didn't anticipate is be evacuating for four months. Um, and we could have moved back sooner, but our daughter's schools school was not open because no schools were open for four months. And and you begin to realize um, the lives that we have built around us have so many moving parts. The intricacies of the complexities of our lives mean that we are far more poised for collapse because of scale, because of these crazy distribution systems that we have for the goods that we know just how precarious they are uh, in light of the pandemic. I mean, it's almost become, you know, how many punk bands will be named, um, uh, you know, distribution channels um, uh, as a result of it, um, that um, it, uh, it was complex. We realized just how complex every little decision it takes to, to make up the thousands of decisions to make every day and agreements that make every day work. Now, the period afterwards, when, when, you know, we moved back as a family after four months into a very rough city, um, to very compromised infrastructure, um, where people were really disoriented and depressed and scared, um, it was also the best times of our lives. I have to say the period after, it, it, I kind of felt like there are several years where I missed films, books, and music. I have no idea what happened because we were living in a bubble. And the bubble meant that every day was filled with heroic decisions that would affect whether the next day would work. And that was through our work and through our personal relationships in our neighborhoods. And, and then the, 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 the trust that you build and, and, and learning the degree of trust that you have or do not have with the people you live next door to um these were incredible civic lessons um and um it um it shapes my my, my life I, I don't believe when people say they've got it figured out or they're in control um no we're not in control um we are human settlements built on some pretty precarious ideas and the larger our settlements the more vulnerable which is why this question of what is the right scale of community to live in is what haunts me. And um, I think we should be living in much smaller communities. I think we should incorporate, um, you know, sort of the systems of volunteer collaboration into our everyday lives far more than we do. We just outsource everything that someone else is going to run it. Someone else is, that we contract with will pick up the garbage. I mean, all those like little decisions of everyday life are built on a very exploitive system that there are a never-ending uh resources including people and 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 um 
and animals as, as just these things that we use, um, rather than living in smaller communities that that maybe prioritize um, what really matters most. And um, and I say that you know speaking from one of the most crazy chaotic mega cities on the planet, New York City, which um, has you know an infrastructure that is robust and yet it just hangs on for dear life and uh you know i, I it impresses me uh, i mean it really does impress me to live in a place where there is investment in infrastructure you know one of the problems with a place like new orleans that was built at sea level or below sea level is that um people complain about the roads but of course the roads are built on land that is sinking at all times because there's no rock it's all mud and um of course we're always going to have bad roads of course we're always going to spend more than we need to on them um and or we think we should have to spend um and and that's because we chose to live there and um and and it's sustainable to live there but we'd have to make some changes about our relationship with um water in particular with water and you know our planet we either have too much of it or too little of it <laughs> You're a dad. You have a lot of data. You've experienced Katrina. You've traveled the world. You probably read the science reports. You believe in science. I've had a lot of the great scientists on multiple times. What a, and it's a real privilege. I'm, I'm very honored that this show is uh, listened to in those circles. And I get a lot of great off the record exchanges. Uh, so I, I know more maybe than I should. So sometimes it makes me really sad. But what do you feel is going to happen? You have kids. What is, I know no one can predict, but this next five years, 10 years, et cetera, is so crucial. And like you said about water, I mean, we may run out of fresh water in places where millions of people are affected. We saw it all over the country this year with the Mississippi, the Colorado. We saw it all over Europe. We saw it in China. Uh, it can just suddenly happen. We have things occurring that they thought might, and the keyword is might happen, back in or in the future of 2050. Now it's here now and more dramatic. There's so many factors. I think the earth would be fine. It'd be arrogant to think otherwise. But what do you feel as you move through the day? Do you think about this sort of stuff much? Have you pushed it off to the back burner? Uh, do you think we can figure it out or is it just going to be semi-catastrophic and then we'll have to adjust, you know, on the fly and with great pain and suffering? You know, the, the joke that uh, I, 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 I don't know, it's not really a joke, but it's sort of the, the quandary I often think of is, am I a short-term pessimist and long-term optimist? Or am I a short-term optimist and a long-term pessimist? Or is it some other version of that? Um, and, and it does depend upon the day. It depends on what you get to work with. Um, during uh, the, 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 the post-Katrina period for me, I spent a lot of time reading science fiction books. Um, the Earth Abides um, was one that really struck me. Octavia Butler really struck me. Uh, Jared Diamond's book, on on collapse became something i just i i could not let go of um and i i don't know i i don't think we're that smart i think we are um uh as a species where we 
are, are, are so driven by fear and um, short-term needs that I don't know if we've created the political apparatus to think in long-term. Um, so I think it's going to be a rocky, chaotic ride. I think even as soon as the, the you know, the next five to 10 years, um, maybe especially, or maybe that's already happening now and, and, and we're getting used to it. And I guess that's always the concern is that we just get used to it. And um, I think that um, things, uh, horrible things are happening. They've been happening for years um, uh, with technology, I guess, communications technology. We're now seeing it much more quickly. It's much harder to hide things. That's a good thing. It also can uh, traumatize us because we just look at it and you think, well, uh, we're screwed. Um, I can't do anything about it. I think that cynicism and that defeatism is maybe the worst problem. And um, I, I think we've got to stop expecting others will solve it, um, which I, I know sounds rather luxurious because most people are just scurrying around to, to make a living. Um, but I think we've got to carve out time in our lives to connect with others and to find small um, bite-sized interventions that diversify our lives, diversify the influences that we expose ourselves to, um, that diversify what our measures of pleasure are. Um, if it's just that we're going to unplug and watch whatever is streaming, um, well, <laughs> we're going to get, we're going to get. But if you can begin to carve out even small pieces of our lives where we gain some control as protagonists, not as consumers, but as protagonists. I, I, I don't want to sound naive, but that does become contagious. That does become um, a movement um, and maybe the best kind of movement because it's very hard to, um, uh, to prevent it uh, from, from succeeding because it's so decentralized. Um, and I don't think, you know, I've been active in the food movement because I love food. Um, food is what politicized me. Um, around the issue of, 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 of industrial animal agriculture when I was a teenager. So I, I'm pretty deep into food, kind of accidentally, but also food is so humbling because it, um, it's, it's amazing um, that we have it. Um, and it is on the backs of, of many that we have it. Um, but it is also an incredible source of joy. And I think for me, that's where I find the joy. I find joy through other, you know, avenues as well. Um, but I think most importantly, we should pursue, everyone should choose to, to pursue what gives them joy, because if they do that, uh, uh, but I think if, if, if you find the things that make you happy, that give you energy, and this is, and it can be a very individual, you know, thing, it can be just gardening. Um, it's amazing, in particular, how gardening inspires others um because it's an attempt to say that i um i, I want to have a relationship with the ecological surroundings um that's that surround me and you plant a garden someone stops and asks what are you doing and then they ask what are you planting and then what is that um so it changes the relationship with our our neighbors um uh i in the past my wife and i in the last year 
um, actually sold our house in New Orleans after all these years, which was a very hard decision, uh, but we don't live there. And um, we um, actually now in a house in a place with lots of fresh water up in the Finger Lakes. And around the corner from our, our house is a solar farm on a piece of property that houses a community garden and a an egg cooperative. And the chickens safely roam around under the solar panels away from you know the 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 view of the hawks. And um, neighbors take turns putting not a small number of chickens, like 120 chickens, uh, let, let them out in the morning and feed them and put them into the coop at night. And it's such an interesting experiment that I had nothing to do with starting, but I, I joined, which is um, we get our eggs, not from the marketplace, but through shared activity. And we care for these, these wonderful creatures that are like little feathered dinosaurs that run around. Um, and they are individuals and they behave differently depending upon who they are and which breed. And it's one of these like strange small intervention interventions in our daily lives that changes our daily lives. And if we can find those, we can begin to build the link between what we do individually and what do we do collectively. And as we found in the work of farmers markets all over the planet now, um, that are intentional mission-driven institutions, much like uh, Sekihara-san's intentional rights covenant as, a, as, as an expression of that institution, um, we can begin to build a political culture and a shared political history, not about our ideas, because I'm so tired of people having it all figured out on, on paper, um, and then you just have to you know, follow it prescriptively. Um, but rather, we create a shared political history that becomes a new political culture. Um, are people hungry for it? Uh, hungry like never before. They're so hungry for, for doing new things in new ways that they will follow the strangest of political leaders. That's how desperate and hungry they are. Um, but if we can find ways to engage people in their everyday lives through basic decisions about what food they purchase and eat um, and how to make those joyful rather than prescriptive things we must do to save the planet, um, then uh, then there's hope. And I see, and, and I, I do work increasingly internationally, and um, I see the same dynamic occurring everywhere and that people are uh, want to liberate themselves from the kind of corporate or nation state identity of who are we and where are we and um this is an incredible period of of uncertainty of of cascading crises um so when you talk about as you asked me about the five years you know next five years we're going to get so used to crisis we're going to forget which one got it going and and i i think that we should get used to which means we're not going to solve the problems that uh, each crisis creates because we're never going to be able to get around to them. Um, but instead, if we lean forward and forge ties with unexpected allies, we can begin to build the networks that will build the future.
The alternative is that there is none because we will just somewhat blindly, but even worse, knowingly um, uh, dive forward into oblivion and, um, and, 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 and we'll um, do so willingly and knowingly, which is just how lost I guess we are. You've been listening to the What Matters Most podcast, a 100% listener-supported program. If you feel inspired, please go to our Patreon page at www.patreon.com backslash whatmattersmost and join our family. So until the next time, stay inspired and in the light.